This is a Socialist News and Views special report. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special report. No Cop City, Colonization, or Ecocide Worldwide is an aspirational title which highlights the multiracial working class movements that have developed to stop Cop City, decolonize, and work to heal our communities and planet. In the last portion of this report, we'll have a report back from an Atlanta forest defender on the increased state repression that took place in December of last year and January of this year in the Wilani Forest in Atlanta, which included the murder of the forest defender Tortuguita. But we start a little closer to home with the Defend the Depot movement. Minneapolis police oust protesters camped out at Roof Depot to block demolition is the title of an article on February 21st on Sahan Journal by Andrew Hazard, The subtitle of that article says, quote, occupants of the Roof Depot site had planned to stay until the city agreed to move the public works project, but police and city staff cleared them out Tuesday evening, reportedly detaining and citing at least two protesters, end quote. The article says the East Phillips neighborhood is a diverse community with a history of pollution, but says organizers are not giving up on their vision to create an urban farm along with affordable housing and a community hub at the old Sears warehouse, which sits On a former federal Superfund site, the article quotes East Phillips resident Rachel Thunder, who was involved in the occupation, as saying, quote, in order to ensure the safety and health of our community, we need to take a stand now, end quote. The article says Defend the Depot is a coalition of people from the American Indian Movement, the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, Little Earth Protectors, and other environmental justice groups, and also says, quote, people gathered at the site Tuesday said they fear that the demolition will release toxic chemicals into the area where state and federal officials have documented high levels of pollution-related health problems like asthma and heart disease, end quote. Another article on Sahan Journal February 24th, also by Andrew Hazard, is titled Roof Depot Demolition on Hold after Judge Grant's injunction to neighborhood activists. And the subheading says, quote, a judge ruled that Minneapolis must pause plans to demolish the Roof Depot building So the Minnesota Court of Appeals can review activists' requests to permanently stop the project, end quote. This past Sunday, February 26th, Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, MFT, and Education Support Professionals, ESP Local 59, held a rally to support East Phillips against the demolition of the Roof Depot. The rally included a number of union officials, pro-movement elected officials, and environmental justice activists. And we start with a few of the speeches from that rally, which was held indoors at the MFT headquarters. This is the MC of the rally, teacher and MFT member and board member, Jessica Garraway, introducing the event. I am a member of MFT as well as on the board um, and founder of the Ecological Justice Working Group. And so, yes, thank you. <laughs> and we are so excited to be putting on this event today um, in this really key um, and historic fight in the East Phillips neighborhood. Uh, to stop the demolition of the depot. Um, It's been really inspiring seeing the work people have put into this fight for years. This is coming to a head, but this has been a fight for years. And seeing the bravery of people taking direct action, standing up for their communities, standing up for community power, right? Um, And seeing the recent uh, uh, victory in term, in the courts of basically, okay, we got some breathing time, but we're here today because we, we gotta we gotta talk together, we gotta strategize. The fight is still ongoing, but the 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 moment of time we have to breathe right now is because of the people who committed on the ground to do direct action. So let's Uh, again, it's an honor to be emceeing this and uh, really digging into this fight today. So, um, I just want to frame this event. Um, so, uh, this event aims to build multiracial working class solidarity among MFT, ESP, and our neighborhoods at Little Earth and East Phillips. Because the reality is, is that we share a common enemy. 
the same people supporting groups like Educators for Equity, which if you don't know, this is a group that seeks to destroy public education, that wants to privatize it, and make education a commodity only for those who can afford it. So the same groups like Educators for Equity and other nonprofits driving the charter school movement and austerity budgets in education are the same rich elites pulling the strings to motivate developers arm in arm with city leaders whose campaigns they fund to disregard the health and welfare of Little Earth and East Phillips residents by demolishing the Roof Depot building and releasing more toxins into the air, water, and soil of an already highly polluted neighborhood. These people, this is the same group of wealthy individuals who are systematically squeezing more and more out of workers while paying them less and less. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that's inspiring about this fight is not only this, the direct action and the sacrifices people are willing to make, but also the vision for what that's, that community space could be. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. So they're talking about they want a cooperatively owned and wholly sustainable urban farm with benefits that flow back into the community. They want... They want uh, a place where uh, people, ho ho uh, homeless people, people who are houseless, can, you know, have have a place of their own to root themselves. There is a there is a big vision that really at the heart of it, we're talking about community care and community power. It's 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 so powerful. So this is the kind of vision, this is exactly the type of better world solution we are seeking for our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, and planet. And I, I see folks here today because I, and, and I think there's this understanding more so than probably any time in, in the struggle in this country where we're understanding how interconnected all of these struggles are. Right. We're understanding that there's not this, clear, this separation between the community, the workplace, you know, all of these single issues. This is all interconnected and again, I, I can't reiterate enough, the same people are behind all of this, all of this turmoil and violence and attack, the 1%. Thank you, Cynthia. The 1%, these are the same people behind it. And we're really going to delve more into that today and the work, the, the amazing work people have been doing. Now, at the event, Ward 9 City Council member Jason Chavez, who represents East Phillips neighborhood, did speak. But unfortunately, he was further away from where I was stationed with my recorder, so the audio was not as clear. But Democratic Socialist City Council member Robin Wonsley, who represents Ward 2 in Minneapolis, also spoke and did a great job highlighting the importance of the movement that is being built here in Minneapolis and how it is, quote, not East Phillips alone, end quote, but is part of a multiracial and international movement and also outlines who our enemy is in this fight for environmental justice. Here is that speech also from this past Sunday. I came to the East Phillips fight back in 2021 um, as a candidate. Um, after by that time six years of community members fighting for their own vision, a indoor farms vision, where the community that has um, endured decades of environmental racism and concentrated pollution, um, after decades of that, of decades of the city not taking proper action to support them, they said, we're not gonna wait for you for the solution. We're gonna create the solution. And that solution was the indoor farms where it's a vision where black and brown and indigenous relatives in this most diverse neighborhood in the city of Minneapolis would create their own renewable energy, would produce their own food, would live in a cooperative way instead of centering profits at the core of, of their community, of their gathering with one another. And in response to that beautiful multiracial uh, solidarity, you know, led vision, the city said, nah. Nah, we're cool with that. 
We think we want to poison you instead. We think we're going to take that building instead. We think we're going to take the land in which we stole from indigenous uh, relatives uh, years and years and years ago. We're going to do that instead. And you won't have to deal with those consequences. And the community said, no, nah, you got to messed up. Yeah. And for eight years, they have been at the front line, sometimes when it was just five of them, sometimes when it was just two of them, and because of their resilience and dedication, they've been able to build the broad movement that we get to celebrate and stand with today. Yes. And, yes. and I want to highlight the fact that the reason why there is support is because we know the vision that they're fighting for goes much broader than just East Phillips. We know it's a vision that will have deep reverberations for all of our communities around the city, around the country. Because it says at the end of the day, all of our lives matter. The ability to have access to clean air matters. The ability to have access to air that's not polluted and that causes cancer, that causes asthma for our youngest uh, children matters. It gets at the core that everyone deserves housing and not have to live in, in buildings that are filled with lead. That matters. That is a shared fight that all of us believe in because we know that has deep impacts for our everyday lives. So because of that, it's through that broader connection of this movement that you have pressured those at the city that I get to wear the badge of now, unfortunately. <laughs> and to say, well, because we matter, we need you as the, the, the institution that represents our interests to create policies that protect our lives. And from that, as people have highlighted, that's where we got the creation of the green zones. That's where we got the creation of the climate action plan that the city itself has said, yes, we want to commit to a future where we are a 21st century uh, climate resilient city in this world that honors the environmental pollution, the history of that, that we've imposed on black and brown and indigenous people. It's through your work that the city itself adopted those policies. And yet, in this moment, we contradict that. East Phillips is the inherent contradiction and hypocrisy of the own positions that the city has taken to support our most vulnerable communities that we have cemented decades of violence upon. And nevertheless, I want us to know that victory is ours on the basis of this is again, it's not East Phillips alone. We are backed by a local, a national, and global multiracial movement. Yes. It's a movement that we see fighting right now in Atlanta. Yes. Where city leaders deploy hundreds of police officers in the beginning of a snowstorm, one of the most dangerous historic snowfalls we've ever experienced in the city. The city just deployed hundreds of staff in MPD to surround our indigenous neighbor. Looks a lot like the thousands of hours that police officers are putting in right now to surround protesters and defenders in, in Cop City right now. That yielded the murder, and that means the assassination of Manuel Tehran. It's a movement where we're seeing it's connected to labor in light of the events in Ohio, yep. <laughs> where railroad workers literally just organized and said, yo, maybe, you know, the corporate players that own our railroad system don't have our interests and actually profit when we destroy the environment. They warned us about it, and we see it right now playing out in Ohio. Yes. And it's playing out once again here in Minneapolis. So I want to know the victory is already won because there are thousands, way more thousands of us that are organizing for that shared future. And best believe, as we're organizing, there's going to be opposition. Both have touched on now a bit. And because our movement is so strong, and the moral path that we're taking is inherently legitimate and it's right, 
we should expect violent tantrums from the ruling class for many more days to come. And our task is not to legitimize their distractions, but to hold the line for what we're fighting for. And we must combat their narratives that is inherently racist, that's unjust and untrue with the truth. The truth is that the people of East Phillips who are standing against the poisoning of their community, they are not in the wrong. But amassing billions while our schools, our public schools continue to go on funding. Now that's, that's violent. When we have unsheltered people out in the cold while corporate developers is building up unaffordable housing and sitting on vacant units, that's not right. That's violence. Not the people of East Phillips. I want to name that as we face these events of opposition, and I want to name who our enemy is, because our movements are successful when we know what we're up against and who is the face of our enemy, the ruling class, the mayor, our misaligned council members, corporate media, MPD. They are going to attack us. They're going to try to discredit us. And we cannot give them the space to do so. We must stand every single time and say, no, our East Phillips community members matter. Native lives matter. Black lives matter. Our white relatives who will also be poisoned at the result of this demolition matter. And we do not care what you say. We are going to hold the line because our children deserve it. Without them, without this, without any of this fight, what future do we have if we believed in your lies? So I hope you all know that we have victory on our side. It is on our side. It might not feel like it because you're seeing the press tour right now of the ruling class. But our folks are organized. We know what we are fighting for. We know what the, the ultimate cost of not fighting for it is. And it's because of that that we get to sit in a room like this and actually create the baseline for a more just and equitable city that everyone deserves. And I look forward to standing with you, be it on the dais, be it on the streets, wherever you are, wherever the people organize, that's where power is. And I will be there with you every step of the way. Go team. Now, in that speech, Robin Wolnsley drew connections between residents fighting for environmental justice here in Minneapolis and the movements going on in Atlanta, where Tortuguita, who Wolnsley referred to as Manuel Tehran, was killed. A line was also drawn between environmental harm and pollution here and with the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And there's also a direct link between the Stop Cop City movement in Atlanta and the Norfolk Southern Corporation, which was not mentioned in the speech, which is that they fund Cop City. According to Defend the Atlanta Forest on Twitter, quote, Norfolk Southern funds Cop City because enviro, labor, and safety disasters like what is happening in East Palestine, Ohio, is daily reality. It doesn't have to be. Norfolk Southern will protect massive profits for investors at the expense of lives. They can't do that without police, end quote. And while our movement is a local, national, and international struggle, so too are our enemies fighting us locally, nationally, and internationally. Shortly, we will play a speech from the visit by an Atlanta forest defender to the Twin Cities. At that meeting, it was mentioned how Cop City will not just be used to train police in the state of Georgia and across the United States and how to violently crack down on urban protests, but will also be used to train international police forces like the IDF or Israeli Defense Forces. So the struggle against Cop City is not just about fighting back against the elements, what Robin Wolnsley called in the last speech, quote, the ruling class, end quote, that are responsible for poisoning the people of East Palestine, Ohio, but also about fighting the elements of the ruling class internationally that currently enforce the occupation, displacement, and murder of the people of Palestine. Now, before we go to the talk from the Atlanta Forest Defender and the escalating state repression they are experiencing in that struggle, We have one more speech covering another important environmental justice movement here in Minneapolis. This speech is Nazir Khan, who is the co-founder of the MN Environmental Justice Table, and is speaking about the movement to shut down the HERC. HERC is an acronym for the Hennepin Energy Recovery Center, which is essentially a trash burning facility in North Minneapolis. Here's that speech. 
So I'm Nazir, I'm with the Minnesota Environmental Justice Table. Um, and yeah, we are trying to shut the Herc trash burner down. So I'm going to talk briefly about where that fight is at, um, maybe a little bit about what the Herc is. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people already know, but just like very briefly. Um, and then the intersections in these, these fights and the larger, I think the lar what is what is at stake in a larger sense. Um, so first of all, uh, Minnesota Environmental Justice Table, a lot of us came out of Line 3, Standing Rock, um, the urban roof deep, uh, sorry, the the uh, Upper Harbor Terminal fight on the north side and other EJ struggles over the years and noticed, so I come in, out of SEIU, I was an organizer with SEIU for five years, um, and no, we noticed that our EJ movement does not have the infrastructure that the labor movement has. We don't have the kind of formation where SEIU 26 and MFT and the nurses can all come together. So some of the things that we've been trying to do is show up in solidarity for other fights. So we are deeply in solidarity with the East Phillips fight. Um, there's staff involved, um, I'm trying to be there. And, and so yeah, we are trying to build the infrastructure for, for a movement, for an environmental justice movement. Um, and so as we do the Hurt campaign, we are also learning <coughs> how to bring organizations um, and communities together to shut down this facility. Um, and, and also to imagine and build what comes after. You know, what do we do with this waste, uh, this waste crisis? Um, because it's not just about diverting the waste, it's about reducing the waste that we have, which is, I'll get to in a second. Um, and then the land that the Herc sits on, which as you probably know is in like the engine of gentrification in the city, North Loop. Um, and if that facility goes, what's, what we are worried about, what happened in Detroit when they shut down their incinerator is property values skyrocketed, despite them telling people this incinerator is safe, just like they say about the Herc, um, the county that owns the, uh, the Herc. Um, and so we want to figure out with this larger movement, with communities, with organizations, with the labor movement, what do we do with this land? Um, and finally, the future of the workers there, because we are, we are fighting for a just transition for those workers too. Yes. Um, so that's a little bit about us. I also, I wanted to mention the Star Tribune, because the same day that article came out calling these uh, activists who came in prayerful and peaceful, um, ceremonial uh, presence in the city council chambers were called basically eco-terrorists. Yeah. The same day, they also had an article about the Herc. And the, I don't know if people saw it, but after spending an extended amount of time with the reporter, um, directing her to, whist to our whistleblower, to um, multiple experts all across the country, they still had a pro-Herc article. And so, so yes, Star Tribune is not our friend, as we all know. <laughs> it is part of the same power structure that we need to identify and wrestle against. And so, um, but a little bit about the Herc real quick. So the Herc was built in 1989. Um, it was, at the time, it was uh, supposed to be built in a suburb. Of course, suburban communities fought it. And um, there's a lawsuit, and so that it ended up being built next to the most one of the most polluted communities in the state. Even at that time, had the highest asthma hospitalization rate in the state. Um, and at the the community fought even then, and was told this facility would be around for 20 years, and then they'll take it away. Yeah. And here we are, 34 years later. The facility is breaking down. Um, <coughs> there are violations in in. Uh, 2019, their mercury filter was uh, not operational, and they didn't tell anyone about it. And so, yeah, we are, you know, uh, we are trying to, there's also been worker injuries um, in around the same time. Um, two workers had 35% and 25% of their bodies burned when uh, slurry from one of the boilers hit them. 2015, someone was almost was permanently handicapped, and we can't even get that data from the county because they're hiding it. But we know that it happened. Um, we have the name of the worker it happened to, um, and so what we are doing right now is we are in the midst of uh, a petition drive. And I just wanted to mention the petition is the story. The petition is told like a story, and the pe person who narrates that story was an MFT member for 30 years. Her name was Beverly Probst. She was a school nurse, and so. 
yeah, just a shout out to MFT, you know, for the role we all have played already um, in this struggle. Um, and I know it was important to her to be part of that And so we have, just so you know the mechanics of what's happening, we have a vote coming up in April um, in which we got ourselves involved after calling out the county for not having a zero waste plan. Uh, the county immediately started a zero waste planning process, <laughs> of course, and really like distorted and controlled it as they do. Um, and, but finally admitted that the Herc is a problem for the first time, that it does actually emit pollution. Um, we know it's the biggest, one of the biggest emitters in the county, 31st biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the state. Um, and you know, it's number one in nitrogen oxides in the county, number two in particulate matter 2.5. But if you go on the county's website, they don't emit any of this, right? Um, so what they did was they admitted this and then they ended by saying, uh, we will shut down the Herc when we reach zero waste, <laughs> which is, you know, a riddle of some Orwellian shit, is what I say. Yeah. Um, and so what we are doing is causing maximum pressure on the county to, to shut down the Herc. Our plan is to introduce an amendment that will name a shutdown date. And so we need all the help we can over the next month and a half Please, we're, we're gonna. Uh, I think I'll put the petition up here. If you could sign the petition before you leave. We can circulate it. Uh, yes, let's. Uh, we can circulate it as soon as I sit down. Um, and we will love help calling commissioners. Um, we're gonna have in-district meetings with commissioners. So, whatever help. There's already MFD members involved in this, but yes, um, we are in a critical period uh, to to shut down this facility. Um, I want to say one more thing before I go, which is. I think what ties these fights together is that East, East Phillips and North Minneapolis are sacrifice zones. They are clogged with pollution, you know, an asphalt factory, a paper mill, a shingles factory, highways, a trash burner, and it, the list goes on and on and on. And when they regulate these facilities, they don't look at the cumulative impact of all these facilities. They look at each facility one by one and give an air permit based on that which is ridiculous, which makes no sense. Um, and this is how this imperial engine operates. It sees all things, all life, even human life as sacrificable. Um, nothing is sacred, nothing can get in the way of profit. And there's a term in the, way, in the EJ movement we use, waste colonialism. Um, it was used first in 1989, the year Herc was built at a United Nations convention when a group of African nations articulated concerns about the disposal of waste, hazardous waste, in, by rich countries in the global south. Um, but the term goes beyond export of waste because as we see with both these issues, waste and pollution make land available for colonial goals through dispossession. Yeah. Yeah. Not only is using <coughs> land as a dump, dump site premised on colonial ways of understanding the world, but dump sites can make more land available. Right? Is that not what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Pollution is not only about colonial domination, it can also be about imperial expansion. And, and, yet, and yet, as the indigenous people of this land have worn for hundreds of years, this colonial mentality is suicidal and doomed. All life is sacred. The water and air and land are sacred. And so here we are again. Um, Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, Standing Rock, George Floyd, Line 3, The Roof Depot. And each time, I, I really want to say this, uh, each time the labor, I've noticed the labor movement and the environmental justice movement grow closer and closer. Yes. yes. Back in 2020, I joined my comrade and brother Greg here as his union led the first official climate, climate strike in American history. Um, and I witnessed firsthand 26 members realize the world-changing role they could play in this struggle. Um, I also saw how your students fought and organized. The students of Minnesota Climate Strike were taught and inspired by the teachers and educators of MFT. And, who, and they made that campaign so special. Um, uh, and also, I just wanted to name my brother and comrade Jackson was there too. Jackson, do you want to? Where is Jackson? He's right over there. He's waiting back over there. There he is. There he is. Jackson was there too, and it helped to inspire him to to join 
to, to join Teamsters 320 um, and move that union to also bargain for climate demands. Um, and so we have a meeting coming up next Sunday, March 5th. We're going to pass around flyers. Sorry, I'm going I'm to end right after this. And I would love, I would love for folks to, to join because we're going to be talk, talking about this waste crisis, how to shut down HERC, and what unions can do. Um, yeah, and the last thing is I, I think workers are so critical to these struggles because they see the world for what it really is. Um, and also for what it can be. Uh, they see right through the building owners and universities greenwashing. Uh, they see the underbelly and dangerous factory floors and accelerating waste of capitalist greed. And they are also so deeply in touch with the work that actually needs to get done. Whether it's through uh, confronting false solutions like trash burners or preparing students to take on this crisis. Thank you. I recorded most of the rally, but I have not included all the speeches from that MFT event. I might edit and share some additional speeches from that event in the future. But now we go to some audio from a meeting that took place previously on February 15th at Mayday Books here in Minneapolis, which was titled State Repression in the Era of Climate Catastrophe and was very well attended. Masks were available at the meeting and everyone was wearing a mask, which made it a very inclusive space. It brought a forest defender named Chickadee to Minneapolis to speak alongside Garrett, who was part of the RNC8 here in the Twin Cities. In this audio, we will hear Charles, who was introducing the meeting, and then audio from Chickadee. I may share the audio from Garrett's portion of the meeting in the future, but for now, we stick with the details of the repression that's happening in Georgia, where one protester has been killed, and a number of protesters have been charged with terrorism and are being held without bond. Here's the audio. Uh, hello, uh, I wanted to thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Charles and I'm going to be moderating the discussion. So we have two great speakers. We have Chickadee, she is a environmentalist. And we have Garrett who has been fighting state repression for 15 years. Right, so before we get in, I'm just gonna give you all like super quick background info on what's being constructed in Atlanta, which is known colloquially as Cop City. So the forest in Atlanta, so Atlanta is known as the city in the forest uh, because about 50% of Atlanta is covered with tree canopy, which is much higher than most other cities, especially in the U.S. And it was originally inhabited by the Muscogee Creek until the 1830s when they were extirpated. And they referred to the forest as Wilaunee. Uh, so what's being proposed right now is a $90 million facility that would be 85 acres of the forest. That would include a mock city as well as a firing range. And just so you know, there's like homes all around here. So it's not just like woods that are far off from the city. They're actually only 15 minutes away from the airport. So it's pretty close by. As we know, forests store more carbon dioxide than they release. And in fact, about 30% of all carbon emissions are stored in forests. The biggest carbon sequestering happens in the ocean actually, but that's not totally relevant. So without further ado, uh, we are going to begin our discussion on state repression in the age of climate catastrophe. Hello, everyone. I do want to say just to amend, uh, or not to amend, but to add on to Charles' statement, uh, it's, it is the largest urban green space of its kind in the United States. The only thing that comes close to it um, is in Florida, but that's not technically like the same type of city orientation. So this is very unique in what it is. It is essential to mitigating floodwaters in the surrounding neighborhoods, which are all almost predominantly black, which is very important to the discussion we're having tonight and the struggle that's underway. Um, also with climate control, it, it really is, is an essential piece of, of moderating the temperature in this area as well. And so you see there the development, I have that square and gray, and then within that, on your left side there, that is what is proposed to be Cop City. Now on the books, currently it is 85 acres, but we're looking at different um, sort of compromise positions that DeKalb County is coming with the mayor and to get the uh, land disturbance permits pushed through. 
acreage is changing. The cops lie. We've seen figures go up to 171 acres total for this project. We've seen it at 85. Um, and on the other side there, the, the part that looks like untouched green, that is in what is known as Entrenchment Creek Park. And that is the site of the proposed Black Hall movie studio, which would become, if, if pushed through for development, the largest soundstage of its kind in Georgia, which is fast becoming um, a production hub for, for TV and movies. So if both of these projects go through, this entire part, what it referred to as the lungs of the city, is gone. And we're going to see a radical change in quality of life for the residents there, but not just the surrounding city, neighborhoods, but the city itself, the state itself, this whole region of the South. This is a, this is a fundamental part of, of the ecosystem. So with that kind of in mind, I wanted to give uh, my recap about uh, the top cop city movement. Um, more in terms of the recent updates of the last month, I'm sure you're all aware of, of the escalations that have happened, but I wanted to break those down a little bit more in terms of uh, repression tactics that are happening. We're gonna go in broader strokes. This is by no mean my timeline has got everything to cover, but I'm, I'm hitting the key points that uh, Garrett's gonna fill in for me after I'm done speaking and talk a little bit more in depth about. So prior to this last December, um, police raids on the forest were consistent, but sort of lazily executed in terms of what was to come. They're doing ground sweeps of the forest. They're looking for encampments or looking for tents, but there were no arrests made in those types of operations. Uh, forest defenders were spry and quick to evade the police. They were able to evade capture and those types of things. So, but then we're looking at 13th of December last year, 2022, there's an interagency raid uh, it's the Georgia Bureau, or the, the Georgia State Patrol, the Atlanta Police Department, do a much more thorough sweep of the woods, and we're looking at standard police brutality tactics we've seen uh, used earlier in the campaign, but this time much more forcefully. They're shooting pepper balls at protesters. They're using chemical agents like gas. They're coming through, and at the end of this raid, we're looking at six protesters arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. Um, this is also marked by a period of, in of increased infrastructure destruction. So they are looking for more permanent base camps in the woods. They're slashing tents. They're destroying water tanks. Um, and this is in the winter. So it's, it's a deliberate attempt to sort of force protesters, uh, one of their first really serious attempts to force protesters uh, out of the woods. They're trying to just to make it uh, inhospitable for them. Um, now, in the immediate aftermath of these arrests and charges with domestic terrorism, we look at a pretty vicious smear campaign of the people arrested, and there's harsh language being used to describe them. And almost all of this is being pushed by one person who's an elected spokesperson for the APF, the Atlanta Police Foundation, who is funding this project. Her name is Allison Clark. She's kind of the person who gives all of the statements on behalf of the police. Um, she's the one who's pushing the language of terrorism. She's the one who's helping push the narrative that forest defenders have been slashing tires in surrounding neighborhoods, forest defenders have been attacking paramedics when they're called to the scene. All of these claims, you know, are false. They're not, these, are, these aren't claims that are even being um, blown out of proportion. These claims are, are outright uh, lies. Um, in addition to Allison Clark, the spokesperson, we have the Community Stakeholder Advisory Committee, which sounds kind of innocuous. It even sounds, you know, democratic. Um, this is an organization I'm going to go into a little bit later as it pertains to more recent events, but essentially what they do is um, they, they help the APF manufacture consent for this project by giving the illusion of, of community input. But in reality, they are hand-selected members who, who are by APF members and the mayor. Um, 
And if you have a dissenting opinion towards this project, you're not on this advisory committee. So you support Cop City as a community member or you're not on this community board at all. But these are also people who help push the narrative um, of outside agitators causing disruption and mayhem in the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, so the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, also in this period directly after the arrest, they, uh, they claim that they declare DTF, the uh, Defend the Forest Movement, as a group, um, calling them a domestic violent extremist group. They claim that this is a categorization that um, Homeland Security is using. Uh, Homeland Security, the White House later addressed, um, I believe it was Newsweek, but they basically said we don't have, that, that categorization doesn't exist. But, so that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation making this up to support their case against the protesters in the forest. Um, during this time, there, it, it, it is a, you know, it is a new morale low, but people rally, the community rallies, uh, people go back into the forest, infrastructure is attempting to be re rebuilt, there are daily breakfasts in the park, um, there's outreach from the community, people are, are, are holding fast through um, this first very shocking wave of, of arrests. And then um, comes the, the raid on January 18th. Um, it begins around 7.30 or 8 a.m. in the morning. This is a multi-jurisdictional raid. We're looking at the Atlanta police, the Georgia State Patrol, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, highly militarized. They're coming through both sides of the park. So they're coming through the Entrenchment Creek Park side and the old prison farm side, which is the site of uh, proposed Cop City. <clears throat> And they're doing a thorough sweep again, similar tactics, tear gas, pepper balls. They're destroying all infrastructure they find. They're slashing tents. By around 8.30 in the morning, they've arrested two more protesters and immediately charged them with domestic terrorism. And by 9 a.m., uh, the forest defender, known by beloved comrades and community members, Tortuguita, was shot 13 times by the Georgia State Patrol. And the raid continued for the rest of the day into the night through the next morning um, until the last tree sitter was eventually taken down by SWAT and removed from their tree sit. Uh, the end of this raid results in another seven arrests, another seven charges for domestic terror. And the Georgia State Patrol, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, claimed that they recovered during this raid um, evidence of a larger terror plot, that they had edged weapons, kerosene, gas masks. And if you look more closely at the affidavits on warrants for these uh, arrests, you're looking at edged weapons being scissors. You're looking at kerosene being propane tanks for camp stoves, the kind that you would cook oatmeal on. You're looking at gas masks. Yeah, I would like to point out who's doing the gassing and why would you want one? Um, all of these, these types of claims are, again, in the, in the immediate media coverage of the raid to stoke the idea that these people are being funded, they're coming from out of state, they're sort of this, this fringe group that does not have community support, that has no connection to Atlanta um, to help further their narrative against them. Uh, at the time of Tortuguita's murder... The Georgia State Patrol claims there is no body cam footage. They claim that Tortuguita fired upon them as they approached their tent in an ambush-style attack. They have since walked their official narrative back twice. And since walking it back twice, the APD has released body cam footage. Not of the actual murder, but of, of parts of the raid and surrounding areas of the woods. That contradicts their statement. I would just like to, to have just take a moment to breathe here and to take a look at our comrade and to sort of to feel that and understand the gravity of the situation. So in the days immediately following Tortuguita's murder, even before the name 
was released before people knew that it was Tortuguita. Vigils are planned. Uh, the name is released. And being a, a prolific mutual aid volunteer, community member, uh, beloved forest defender, uh, there is an enormous outpouring of support, vigils across the country. A large vigil happens in Atlanta. And the following Saturday, there is a demo in downtown Atlanta uh, that results in two cop cars being torched, the APF windows being smashed, uh, several key funders, uh, banks who, who, who are funding this project have their windows smashed. And it is eventually broken up by Atlanta police and six more people are arrested, charged with domestic terror. Uh, Georgia also invoked um, sort of a conspiracy law here, and everyone they grabbed, who were just random six people that they could get their hands on, were also charged with arson because of the burned cop cars. Two of the protesters grabbed during this, demo this demonstration were uh, locals. Their bond, individually apiece, were set at $315,000. The remaining four protesters who were apprehended in this demonstration are being held without bond. Again, I want to really emphasize uh, these claims against the people who are being held. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's official slander. Um, if, if you again, these are, these affidavits are available to look at online. I can link towards the end. Uh, the Defended Lana Forest website has scans of them. Ultimately, what we're looking at is misdemeanor trespass, uh, and that's 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 landing them with domestic terror charges. So demonstrations continue around the country. Support for the movement uh, continues around the country. And on the 31st of January, uh, the mayor and DeKalb County announced they've come to a compromise about their land disturbance permits, um, essentially announcing construction will begin. And a uh, heavily militarized escort starts to help construction equipment stage near the proposed site of Cop City. And on February 1st, the following day, SB 11, or also known as the Georgia Fights Terrorism Act, passes through the Georgia State Senate, which will allow the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to independently arrest and prosecute individuals on their own. It's now headed to the House. Um, so that's where it's being debated currently. But it passed through the Senate almost immediately. We're looking at a few days later. So the the committee that I mentioned earlier, the uh, Community Stakeholder Advisory Committee, um, member Amy Taylor, she files an appeal with DeKalb County Zoning Board over these land disturbance permits. And she uses environmental attorney John Schwartz to represent her. And this is intended to, 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 to get a, a stop work order um, until the case can properly be reviewed because Part of it being a fraudulent organization, the Community Stakeholder Advisory Committee did not review these land disturbance permits. They did not sign off. This, this was all just pushed through, again, manufacturing consent for the project. Um, the, the mayor and CEO of DeKalb County, Michael Thurmond, both comment on, on, on the, this, but fail to mention that one of their own members was the one who filed the appeal, and they also fail to mention that another member of this same board, Nicole Morado, quit after Tortuguita was murdered. Um, so we're looking at what's supposed to be a standstill until it's revealed that they're basically, in email exchanges, are, are, are planning to go through with it regardless. They're saying we're going to power through. So one thing I feel is important to highlight the militarization of this project uh, when, I, when I talk about police officers, uh, there's probably an image that comes to your head, but I want you to really take a look at, at the presence in the woods currently. These are photos that were apprehended from the worksite. Like, this is, these are the, this is the presence in the forest. Uh, this is what will be trained at Cop City. Um, and it's important to know that this is not training and de-escalation. This is not, this is not uh, mental health services, um, 
This is a mock city. Uh, what we, we say it not just to reference the size of the project, but this is literally going to be a mock city where they can practice putting down protests, urban insurrection. There's going to be streets, fake storefronts, a burn building for the fire department, a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad, areas to test bombs, shooting ranges. This is what it's for. So that's sort of the recap of the last month or so in, in, in the movement right now, and clearly an escalation from earlier attempts at, at thwarting the movement, but it's not necessarily a, a new trend. And that is the talk from Chickadee about ongoing repression of the Stop Cop City protests in Atlanta. One other bit of news, Abolition Media published an email titled Public Works Truck Lit on Fire in Response to Evictions in Minneapolis. The email from February 24th starts, quote, on the early hours of the 24th in response to the eviction of indigenous elders, land defenders, and allies, Roof Depot in East Phillips, a Minneapolis public works truck near the depot was lit on fire, end quote. The published email ends, quote, we acted autonomously and encourage others to take matters into their own hands. We stand in solidarity with comrades in Atlanta who seek to stop the construction of a cop training ground in the Wilani forest. Defend the depot. Viva Tortuguita. Fuck 12, end quote. And that is our special. I want to thank everyone for listening. And if you think these movements are important, I really encourage you to share this report with others. We end with another clip from this past Sunday's rally in solidarity with the Defend the Depot movement. This clip is a song from MFT's Jessica Garraway about the movement at Little Earth and East Phillips to defend the depot and create an urban farm. This is sung a cappella at the rally. Solidarity. They say it's a crime wanting to breathe easy and free how we plead in the arsenic dust where will we go demolition won't serve us that's why we say no and we'll stay growing our gardens in the behind our roots stronger together deep as the prairies holding the line the powers that be so used to getting their way making us pay there's no backing down, no compromise. The people are here and we're on the rise. And we'll stay growing our gardens in the ruins you left behind. Our together deep as the prairie holding the line holding the line holding the This has been a Socialist News and Views special report.